Well, it is my joy uh, to be with you this morning. I'm going to give you a quick warning. I injured my ribs uh, playing sports as if I wasn't 38 years old. Uh, so if you see me wince or pause, I'm not having like a moment of charismatic fervor. I am processing through poor decisions I've made. Oh, it's important to share those stories. Like this is this is a sermon this morning about about how stories matter. I want you to know that story, so you know what's going on with me up here. But but it's important for us um, to think through the stories that sort of govern how we see the world. You know, I I, I deal with this a lot, uh, even in explaining my ministry to people. They think that as a as a campus pastor, I'm doing like these apologetic debates all the time. Like I'm getting into these lengthy arguments with people about, you know, deep problems. But really most of the time, it's just trying to unpack what story we think actually governs our lives. Is it the story of like success and wealth and, you know, personal achievement? Or is it Jesus' story? This has really been on my heart, uh, particularly as a father. My son Wesley processes the world a little differently. You know, he's needed, you know, a, a lot of help as he's entered, you know, elementary school. And one of the things, some of the wonderful people who have, who have helped uh, coach and, and, and do kind of speech and behavioral therapy for my son have taught us about are these things called uh, social stories where you write, you let, you know, my son gets anxious or, or, or nervous about new situations, so you write him a little story or you tell him a little story about what's going to happen. You know, when we moved down to Newport News, we had to write a new story about like, hey, what's our new church like? You know, or about moving to our new house. And you can always tell when a story has resonated with him. You know, when it's like, when it's powerful. Because it's not just that he hears it and takes it in. It's that he repeats it back to himself again and again. He doesn't let himself forget it. Like there are certain story elements that'll just keep coming up. Like, you know, there's, there's things he loves. Uh, the one in particular that's happening right now is, like, he loves the summer. He loves, he's not, you know, he's, he's good at school, he's fine at school, but he loves summer because it means we get to go to the pool, and he gets to build Legos all morning and things like that. So every night before bed, you know, it's like we kind of talk to him, it's like, okay, we got this many summer nights, and so he's like, tonight is a summer night. Tomorrow, I get to wake up and draw. It's like he tells himself, like, he's like the, it, and he'll sometimes ask, Dad, is tonight a summer night? <laughs> you can tell that that idea, that story of the summer is really resonating with him. And so as we, as we dive into, we're going to be reading out of the book of Micah, which is one of my favorite uh, books in the entire Bible. But for a lot of people, they don't hang out in these prophetic books very often. Well, a part of what we're taught, what we're doing today a part of what this, this book, this prophecy was doing was reminding the people of their story. Was sort of casting a vision for the story that they were a part of. And as we seek to follow Jesus out into this world, it's very easy for us to forget which story we are a part of. To get caught up in all the things that want to tell us about making our own story. And getting caught in those loops. And so this morning, uh, as we dive in here, our, our kind of goal, our, our, our desire as we read out of this is, what does this remind us? 
Help us remember. Maybe teach us about the story of the Lord. All right, so we are going to be reading all of Micah 4, if you'd like to read along with me. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. Then we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. And he shall decide for strong nations far off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you? Like a woman in labor, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now... You shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There, there, you shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let her cast our gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron. And I will make your hooves bronze. And, I shall beat, and you shall beat into pieces many peoples. And devote their gain to the Lord. The wealth of the Lord to the whole earth. Heavenly Father, as we, as we hear your word. As we seek to listen to it. Lord, we are, we are sometimes made aware as we read this how how far and distant we are now from the time when this is written. Help us, uh, help us to understand, to translate, to grasp what you have for us in your good word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is quite, po- you know, the, dating Micah is not the easiest of the, of the books to date, but quite possibly a 2,700-year-old text we just read. With that, there's going to be a little translation that we need to do. This is going through not just a couple you know, languages, but a couple cultures as well. And so as we go through this today, we'll, we'll, we'll try and unpack some of those things, some of those themes that are easily lost. We also need to remember something as we read this. This is written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. First Peter um, informs us that we have access now to the mystery that the prophets of old would have longed to know. So it'll be important as we read through this, both to recognize what Micah sees and what we now see, thanks to the, 
to the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we, as we keep that in mind, I'm going to break this into three sections. And we're going to talk about this through the terms of the hope that this forward-looking prophecy is giving us. Because Micah, for the most part, is a book of, of judgment on Israel. It's a book about how the people claim um, this special privilege of being the Lord's people, but actually don't care about what he cares about. This passage here, along with the next passage, which is, which is you'll find quoted in a lot of Christmas times because that's this uh, messianic prophecy that comes next. This in the middle serves as sort of a turning point in the prophecy that, hey, the Lord cares about what you do. But there's but there is not just judgment coming from the house of the Lord. There's hope as well. There's redemption. There's rescue coming. So with that in mind, with this kind of hopefulness of this passage in mind, we're going to see it, we have this idea of this hope for the future, that we are going somewhere, that our narrative has a direction. We have hope for the hurting. You know, who is this hope for? And finally, hope for the present. In the midst of hard things, in the midst of trouble, where do we root our hope? So let's start with these first five verses. These are, um, the, I think these are very exciting verses. These are very popular verses in certain, in, in certain realms. You'll, you'll see this line from verse 4, the idea, every man will sit under his vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. You know, we're coming up on 4th of July. I don't tend to mix those two things, but this was a favorite passage of a lot of you know, the, the founding fathers as they were kind of thinking about what liberty meant, kind of cherry-picking this passage out of its context to kind of do that. But, but our hope for the future is more than just the establishment of, of like a temporal place where we can feel not afraid. It's more than that. And to get to that, I think we need to unpack some of the imagery that's being used here. This is where we need some of the translation because at the beginning part, which doesn't sound as exciting to us, it's like, oh, cool, God's going to uh, you know, establish a really high mountain. That's cool, I guess. We need to understand what that means. Um, within the ancient Near East, uh, high peaks were places of worship. They were seen as holy places. And you'll, if you read through the Old Testament, uh, especially the histories, you know the good kings are always either not, or if they're really good kings, taking down the high places. So high mountaintops were places of idol worship and sacrifice. So what is God saying? And it would be debated, oh, which is the highest place? Which is the most holy place? It's like, I'm going to make it really clear who's the most holy. In the end of time, you won't be having these, when, when the latter days come, there won't be a debate about who is really God. I will make it abundantly. I will make it visibly clear. And what will happen once that happens, you'll see uh, this line that also might fall kind of under, all the people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come. This is, um, this is language that's echoing some of the language that Babylon used to describe itself. Like all rivers flow to Babylon. All the people flow there. It's like, it, it, Babylon is such an old city. It has such a cultural relevance 
to the ancient Near East. It's hard for us to even fathom the ancientness of that. Babylon was ancient by this point. Like, it has such cultural cachet. When other, country, when other nations would rise up and conquer Babylon, Babylon would then culturally take sway over the empires that conquer. Like, it is this, it is this cultural force that changes everyone who flows into it. I'd say the closest we could kind of maybe analogize to this is that, that sense that you know, college graduates have that I have to go to New York or, or to LA, you know, that kind of that tug or that pull that just, you know, I, I'm a little bit from, I'm from the Northeast. So like after college at Penn State, there was just like, oh, you just, all your dorm mates just moved to Brooklyn. Like there was just like, you felt like this magnetic force of it. And uh, maybe DC around, I don't know. Uh, but it, it, you, you felt like this thing, and, and it changed you, and it just had this cultural sway. Even if you didn't have a job that was bringing you there, you just, just felt it. The Lord is saying, no, I will be a God. The pull will be, to, will be to me. And what is the pull bringing people to experience? The law and the judgment of God. This is one other thing. What we don't, we hate kings in America. Uh, we don't understand that that a king had a very specific um, role within for most of human history. The king was sort of the supreme court. The the in in most societies, the king was the highest decider. And often, even the lowest person on the totem pole could event could argue their case in a in a theoretically just monarchy could argue their way up to see the king and get his judgment. That would be like making it to the Supreme Court with your case. And God is saying like, I will be that for all the nations of the world. They will flow to me. And unlike the capricious justice of a king, you will be getting right justice. The world, and, and with that justice, what is the imagery that we see? Swords and being beaten into plowshares, war not being learned anymore, people feeling safe. The, the justice of the Lord is a good thing. Do not be afraid of, uh, like, we, we, we see these terrible, you know, terrifying images of Judgment Day. Think of it as Justice Day. Of the, the, the wrongs of the world being put right, being, being put before a judge who will actually judge justly. It's what Micah is saying is you are in a story that has a good ending. That really matters, right? The ending of a story really matters, right? Have you ever had a book really ruined? The worst is like a little tacked on epilogue that ruins a book. I just learned this week that my wife does not read the prologue or epilogue of books. It blew my mind. I'm like, do you think the prologue is the foreword? She's like, no, nah, there's just nothing, any, never anything good in there. I just read the book. If it was good, it would be in the book. It'd be a chapter. I think she actually might be right. Um, but it's blowing my mind. As somebody who, who studied literature in, in college, literature and history, it, was, it blew my mind. But regardless. I remember this one book, I think it's called Bel Canto, that I read when I was like a teenager. It was one of those books that like everybody was reading at the beach. And that was like this hostage situation. It was pretty good. It's a pretty compelling book. I had the worst epilogue of all time. And everybody told me, do not read the epilogue. Just read the book, enjoy the book, don't read the epilogue. 
I did it, and I put the book down, and was just sitting there. I was like, I gotta do this. If it's really the worst epilogue of all time, I gotta. I have to experience it. It was. It was terrible. Ruined the whole book. I don't. Do not read the book. It's like, whoa! If this is what the author thought was a good ending, all the good stuff in the book was by accident. But this is really important for us, right? Like, this is really important for us. What is the ending? Of God's story. Because that informed, that tells us a lot about whether this stuff, all the rest of this, is good. We are heading somewhere beautiful. The hope that we have is beautiful. This is really. We take for granted a directional narrative. So much of what we see are cycles of violence. Think about um, so many of the Eastern religions, think about Hinduism as this idea of samsara, that you're just on this wheel of suffering that always turns. Think about the nihilism that's starting to become very prevalent right now. It's because we don't see much changing. It seems like the same things come the same suffering rises and falls, the good things. And in that cyclical narrative, it's like, man, the joys are just there before the crash into the pit. But it, if our narrative of our story, if our hope is rooted in an ending that is beautiful, if we're moving towards a future that we want to be a part of, that, that changes things. gives hope. It gives hope, and it gives hope as we keep moving in this passage for people who are hurting. If you're stuck in the cycle of pain and suffering, it's hard to be very hopeful. If you don't have reason to temporarily expect your situation to get any better, Hard to wake up each day. The Lord says in that day, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven out. And I really want you to hear this. And those whom I have afflicted. Who is he rescuing? First of all, see who's doing the rescuing. He's gathering all these people up. He's gathering them in their weakness, in their pain. Out of judgment. When we hear this, this is the part where we need to look backwards with what we know. Where we have gotten a piece of the story where Micah has not. That, that why did Jesus come? He, you know, he tells the Pharisees, it's like, it's not the, not the healthy who need a doctor. He's come for the sick. He's come for those who are in righteous, like who know that they have done wrong and deserve their condemnation, who are condemned by him as righteous judges. Like, you know what? But I'm coming to rescue you. We shouldn't take this story for granted. Like, this is a story that, like, is, should be, is the wildest part of faith in Jesus. 
And we, we have a tendency to take it for granted. That, like, we, we, we tell this thing again and again that Jesus, that Jesus was born into this world. Think about the place that God stepped down into. That he willingly took on being poor in growing up in just absolute nowhere, the sort of place that people, that his own disciples spoke ill of. And he lived a perfect life under cruel, like, like Roman occupation. Like, there's another ending to that story. Like, I, Jesus, Jesus could easily be like, yeah, I took the hardest life that this, you know, world could throw at me, and I lived perfectly. What's your excuse? Has any, I used to run a pickup soccer game up uh, when I was a pastor, when I was doing, like, ministry up in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, you know, has this moment and a lot of the like local expat communities kind of discovered it. And we got a bunch of like old semi-pro guys from various countries. And it started to be that you really cared about which one was on your team. There were some guys who just like made you think that you were way better at soccer than you were. And it's just like, I was like, man, did I just hit a diving header? No, Julio just hit that scored off your face. Like, <laughs> but you felt great. He lifted you up. There's this guy, Kai, who was a D3 soccer player who was great. He's just like, these guys are like, man, I want to be on this team. There was an ama- maybe the best guy who played with us, though, was not very fun to play with. He was a Colombian semi-pro uh, player, and he was amazing, and he could score a lot. And you might win a lot just having him on your team. He was so good. But boy, you were going to hear about every pass you passed wrong and everything you did wrong. And you had nothing to kind of condemn him with. Like, he's nutmegging people. He hit a bicycle one time. Like, he's just like, this is like, what's going on here, man? But you played on his team, and you felt your failure. Because he made sure to point out every single one. They were failures. You know, we live in a time uh, where self-actualization is very glorified. We live in a time where it's like, what can you make of yourself, define of yourself? Like, and, and it's preaching this idea of like, there's no limits on you. You can be whoever you want to be. And, they don't, and I think some of the people who, who, who speak this, this narrative positively don't realize what a curse that is. Because what does that also mean? Every failure to be something truly special, truly world-changing, is all about you. What are you going to go, blame your circumstances like in a big excuse maker? The hope that's being, that's being promised here, the hope that the hurting, like, like think about the categories here, the lame, you know, it's like those who are afflicted from outside themselves, those who have, those who've been driven away think, you know, we, we live in an era of sort of refugee crises. Like those who just like, man, what do you do when you were in, when you had a home, when you were doing something? Like, you know, I had a friend who, who was a Lyft driver who used to be a doctor back in like West Africa. It's like, yeah, I was some, I was, but I've been, I've been put in this place where I can't do that. 
but also those whom I have afflicted, those who are, who are righteously condemned, like those who have failed, those whose failure is entirely on them. The idea of outside rescue, the idea that our hope comes from outside ourselves is really powerful. It is freedom from the curse of the comparative righteousness that says, pull up Instagram and see how you're failing. Because there's a hundred people here who are doing it better than you. Why can't you just do these three simple life hacks? <laughs> and you're exhausted. And you're weary. And you might even know, yeah, I know it's my problem. But I'm tired. And I'm hurting. Hope in that moment that relies not on you saying, I'll just dust myself up and pull myself up from my bootstraps. But hope that relies instead on the ability of the Most High God, who we remember is going to make it clear in justice and beauty and peace that he is the righteous only God. Hope that relies on him. Sounds like a really beautiful hope. Frankly, that's, that's the hope we need right now. We can sometimes detach this future hope. We can detach the beginning of this chapter from the right now. We can treat our spiritual lives and our daily lives as these two separate spheres. We can create a false dichotomy between these things. Okay, yes, I have this spiritual hope for the future, but what about, what about right, but like right now, I just got to grind. Hashtag grind set. we get to this last section, and this is probably the strangest section. As I was reading Micah 4 earlier, you were probably like, okay, cool, cool, swords, plowshares, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, the lame, yeah, we like rescuing the lame, yeah, Jesus taught us about that. Uh, what's this part about crushing our enemies like a bull with horns of iron? Like, uh, I don't really get that part. That's a little stranger. Or the part where we're like women in labor. Um, I have two children. I have witnessed labor twice. It's not a it's not a pain that I'm excited about. Um, really solidified my status as a wife guy who was like, wow, she's much stronger than me. I already knew that because she's run like eight marathons, but doubly know it now. Uh, no, but the reality of hope. When anytime we talk about hope, anytime we talk about hope that's actually meaningful, we need to talk about hope that exists in the midst of suffering and pain. You know, we got, a, we got a wide age range in this congregation. The older you are, I'm sure the more acquainted you are with the reality that there is no one in this life who escapes suffering. You can in, do a lot of work to insulate yourself from it, but it, it'll find you. You can believe all the lies about money and security and safety and all these little protections, you, hedges and walls you can build around yourself. But pain and hurt in this world will find you. Because we live in the midst of a sinful world. Every little selfish choice that gets made isn't, doesn't exist. Like the lie that, 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 that the 
of the influencer world that like, oh, you, it's you, you define yourself. It's all like you're this isolated being, this person doesn't exist. We live in interconnected worlds. When I am selfish, it comes at the expense of someone else. When I am hurt and I, and I hurt back in return, it's, it's, it's like a domino effect of pain and suffering. And the evil of it is that it is not distributed fairly. It's evil. What hope carries us through here, through our suffering, through the pain? You know, Micah is describing labor because it's like the worst, that's the most intense pain he can use to describe. He's like, you guys are going into exile. You want your present hope to be, and this was kind of, if you read through the prophets, you'll see this. They're like, you want your present hope to be just this numbing of suffering, this insulation from it. But that's not what's going to happen here. The unrighteousness, the evil that we have done, there's suffering that's a part of it. Particularly in the case of Israel, they are being punished for their unfaithfulness. But God says, that is not the end of the story. And this is another one where we can read a little bit backwards and we can think about what we sang about Jesus and, and, and what, like the, the, that he suffered, that he died for us. The path of our salvation. The perfect you know, we, we, we return back to that idea of Jesus as the, as the perfect person. What was the path of our hope? It was not around suffering. It was not tidy. The death that Jesus died on our behalf, that we should have died, was painful and prolonged, filled with humiliation and shame. But on the other side of that is the resurrection. On the other side of labor, there's birth. Our hope for right now is not try harder. It is endure. Because what you are enduring for is beautiful. And in the endurance, you are being made more like Jesus. I'll explain that a little bit more here in a second. But really understand that like suffering, because of Jesus' suffering, suffering now, in some way, knits us closer to our God. He is not ignorant of our suffering. God is not sitting up there far sanitarily excused out of the pain of this world, but he chose to step down into it and redeem us through suffering. It wasn't just like this born, sacrificed, over. It was lived, 
about suffering. There is something in our suffering, in our enduring, that brings us closer to Christ. And there is something in that hope for the future that reminds us that we have something worth enduring for. Now, now I want to illuminate that idea that, like, there is, in this, sec- in this next part, you have this kind of this language of, like, you know, the nations don't know the plan that I have. They're ready to be threat. Like, the, the, you know, in this, in this language, we have to kind of translate this one more time. It's, it's this idea of, like, our enemies. We don't really think in terms of enemies. As much, But think about that. If you were a nation in the middle of sort of one of the most turbulent areas in the whole world, the, the nations that surround you kind of, kind of stand in for this. We might think of like the temptations that we have, the evil that we have, the things that kind of assail us. Maybe, you know, the, 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 the lies of culture that we might believe. These things are surrounding us thinking we, we have them. God says, they don't know that I am going to make you strong. In the midst of our suffering, God is not abandoning us, but he will make us strong. That's what Jesus has promised us in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we see this, this language here, uh, the, in many senses, like the idea of a bull is like that, this, this like horn. That imagery is all through the Old Testament. It's sort of a national symbol of Israel. It's why they kind of fall into the habit of the gold calves again and again, you know, not just the one time they make two more up in Israel. It's this thing they fall into again. They want to kind of present God in this image. But there's this sort of national idea. We might think of it as the eagle, you know, for America. You know, it's like, oh, your talons are like you know, titanium or something. You know, don't worry about it. But it's, it's this idea. It's like, I will take you, this people, and make you strong. We might translate that with our knowledge of the Holy Spirit and say, the Spirit of the Lord is going to make this church strong. Don't panic, people of God. Though you feel like you're surrounded, though you feel like you're losing the culture war, panic looks bad on you. The Lord is victorious, and he will make you strong. The evil of this world, the suffering of this world, it is no match for the Spirit of God. How do we remember that? How do we remember that? Sometimes I need to learn from, like, for me, it's like, I need to learn from my son. I need to repeat it over and over again. I need to repeat that it's not my story. It's not about how I can see myself. It's that Christ has welcomed us. We're the lame, the condemned in this part. He's gathered us into his story. And it's a good story. It's a beautiful story. And it doesn't rely on our own ability. We will be made strong. We are being made strong through the power of God's spirit. story worth proclaiming. Micah tells this story not just not just to be read once and forgotten. It's meant to be read aloud. It's meant to be repeated. It's meant to be remembered. When the Lord gives in Deuteronomy 
the, the chief commandment, the great commandment, the Shema, the, the you love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the fo- what follows afterwards is like, put that everywhere. Put it on your doors. Put it in your walls. Put it on tassels on your clothes so you'll remember it. I grew up in a, uh, one of the suburbs I grew up in was predominantly Jewish, and you would go and all their doors would have mezuzahs with like, they would have the great commandment on it, just on their door, like everywhere. So you remember, remember. It's one of the key commandments in the Old Testament. Remember. You've got to tell it. You've got to repeat it. You can't be shy about it. You want an application, if you're an application sort of person. Tell yourself this story every day. Tell yourself that you can return to the Lord. The word repentance and the word return are, the, are one and the same in Hebrew. Come back. Return. Repent. Gathered up. You can't make yourself strong enough. You can't steal yourself or, or protect yourself enough. He can make you strong. He can welcome you in to the story that has a happy ending. A perfect ending. Where we no longer need to be afraid. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to us. We are so tempted to forget your story, to rely on our own understanding, to rely on our own strength, to put our trust in ourselves. And Lord, you are the one who gathers us up. You are the source of our hope. You are the one who strengthens. Lord, help us to remember where we are going. Help us to remember the direction our story is going and boldly, joyfully follow you through the pain, through the suffering, to glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.